Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. At RxSafe, we believe in improving patient health by challenging conventional wisdom, upending the status quo, and transforming the retail pharmacy industry. Our innovative technology solutions are designed to accelerate your pharmacy's success and change the way you do business. We develop long-term partnerships with pharmacies and other industry innovators to help attract new customers, create additional revenue streams, and transform the traditional pharmacy model. Become the adherence packaging leader in your community and practice at the top of your pharmacy license. Get started today. Visit rxsafe.com. That's rxsafe.com to learn more. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You want to see pain? Look at these. Welcome to the Pain Pod, the podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important. focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city like Mountain Man. Without the beard from the hills of West Virginia and certified in Weapons of Mass Destruction Response. It's Dr. Mark Garofoli. All right, Pain Pod Nation, welcome back. And here today, uh, well, well, pretty much as always, we're going to have a a very uh, riveting and hopefully impactful uh, conversation here on the Pain Pod. Uh, so what we're going to dive into today is really, um, you know, the, what some would refer to as the ivory tower, uh, academia, yours truly, of course, uh, being in that tower with many, many other pharmacists across our country. Uh, so we're going to be concentrating really on, uh, you know, the overlap or the setting of academia when it comes to uh, ESP management, but of course, substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, opioid addiction, you know, the whole gamut, the genre altogether, um, really in health professional schools, but of course, in schools of pharmacy along the way. And most importantly, I'd like uh, all of us to welcome uh, Dr. Lucas Hill. Uh, he is our guest today coming from down in Texas. Uh, so Lucas, uh, something I usually ask everybody in conversations and, and of course on the pain pod, but what's your story? Basically, what's your story in a nutshell? Hey, Mark. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Um, you know, I was born in rural Missouri and I went to pharmacy school at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, after that, I, I pursued two years of residency in a family medicine program up at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, and my residency project was focused on naloxone co-prescribing in outpatient family health centers. So that's really how I got interested in and connected to the world of substance use and harm reduction. I joined the faculty at UT Austin in a co-funded role with a local federally qualified health center. Uh, got some funding from the Texas Targeted Opioid Response to develop the Texas Opioid Training Initiative. 
and established the Pharmacy Addictions Research and Medicine or FARM program at the University of Texas at Austin uh, with a heavy focus on research and professional education. I'm also married to the wonderful Sarah Hill, who works for the education nonprofit Michigan Virtual and I'm father of the equally wonderful Silas Hill, the unquestioned number one fan of the Netflix show Puff and Rock, which notably has nothing to do with smoking crack. <laughs> well, that caught my ear, that's for sure. I have a feeling a couple <laughs> others would have thought of that too. Good golly. <laughs> uh, and we were uh, we were chatting before. I I, uh, I recall you're a, a loyal, devoted fan of the Kansas City Chiefs as well. So, uh, I, are you a fan of Mahomes? I, I presume. Oh yeah, no that that definitely reawakened my my love for professional sports. We were uh, lost in in the desert for a long time, and now we are on top of the world. Awesome. Well. <laughs> And hey, that's uh, if you noticed, I presumed I did not assume you, you never want to assume, right? Um, very happy to hear in that background there. I heard some UPMC action, uh, having gone to pit myself and working at WVU. Yes, walking backyard brawls. Me and the missus, uh, where would you, Lucas, and I uh, be without our, our spouses and our families overall, right? Um, well, well, thanks for that. Uh, you know, brief background there. It's always good to know, uh, you know, who's on the mic a little bit, a little bit about uh, our guests, of course. So, all right, well, jumping into our conversation here, you know, really honing in on, you know, you mentioned uh, getting your start there, talking about uh, uh, some uh, project focusing on naloxone, certainly a hot topic these days. I think we'll, we'll kick back to it in a moment, but uh, back in, in uh, uh, not that long ago, really, but uh, summer of 2022, I believe it was uh, in June of 2022. Uh, there was uh, actually the Time Magazine article. Uh, it was titled, Fewer Than Half of U.S. Pharmacies Carry One of the Most Effective Drugs for Opioid Abuse. Um, I will include, of course, the links uh, to that article in our show notes. Uh, but what would you say is your cliff notes of that? Because, I mean, seriously, bud, like Time Magazine, that, that's getting up there. So tell me about that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, we, we were fortunate to have our study, which was published in Drug and Alcohol Dependence, covered by time. And, and it, it described a year-long study that was really a massive undertaking. So I had the privilege of working with a team of faculty and students from across the country to conduct a secret shopper audit of buprenorphine availability in community pharmacies. And we did this audit in 11 U.S. states. I'm going to give a Shout out to Dr. Lindsay Loetta, who led caller trainings and managed data collection processes for this audit that included 6,000 pharmacies uh, initially. 6,000? Yeah, 6,000. Wow. So this was a, a several large teams of, of volunteer callers, mostly pharmacy students, putting in the time and effort to make sure that we got valid data. Um, and we we really also wanted to design it not to impose upon pharmacists time excessively, but but we didn't want them to know who was calling because uh, we wanted to get real world answers from the patient's perspective. And, and what we we're looking for was when a patient is prescribed a common form and dose of buprenorphine, and we went with the generic buprenorphine naloxone, eight slash two milligram strips, uh, just a quantity of 14, a patient, let's say, newly out of an inpatient uh, residential treatment program, getting their first outpatient prescription, um, they're, they show up to a pharmacy, what's the likelihood that they're going to be able to get that medication that day, particularly given that we know that individual 
is at a very high risk for recurrence of use, especially if they can't get prompt access to the medication. They may have no doses uh, on them waiting to be able to get it from the pharmacy. And so whether they can pick it up immediately is crucial. We also know that that patient should be provided a, a prescription uh, if they aren't actually given a, a box of naloxone. Um, so, so we also included an audit of naloxone. But buprenorphine, that buprenorphine product was our primary focus for the study. And we found that slightly fewer than half of the pharmacies we audited were prepared to promptly dispense those 14 generic Suboxone strips. And this actually ranged pretty significantly across states. The, the state with the lowest availability was California at only 31% of pharmacies, and Maine was the highest at 86%. Most pharmacies were willing to order the medication if it wasn't in stock, and they typically could get it in about two days. But approximately one in five pharmacies said, no, we're not willing to order that medication whatsoever. Wow. In nine of 11 states, availability was significantly higher in chain pharmacies compared to independents. And that, that really builds on prior evidence uh, and uh, anecdotal reports that independent pharmacies have additional unique concerns when dispensing buprenorphine that make them even less likely to provide it. These, these are, these are some staggering numbers when you think about it. I mean, let's just kick back to, as you said, this was over the course of, of 6,000 pharmacies. So when, you know, I, I always, uh, the, the statistics that I'm a fan of is just respecting all sides, raw numbers and percentages. So that means like 3,000 pharmacies, give or take, of course, out of 6,000 had some concerns or opportunities, right? That, that's amazing. Now, now obviously, uh, you know, education is going to come into play with that. And that's kind of our overarching theme here too today. But, uh, you know, comfort level uh, for a healthcare professional, especially a pharmacist, that, that's going to come into play too. So, uh, you know, Lucas, I, how, how would you say, you know, how can healthcare professionals that, that are not comfortable in the pain management and substance use disorder space still make a difference with patients in, in communities because that's a resounding opportunity in our communities. Absolutely. Well, you know, Mark, I would just say that we're in the middle of the deadliest drug crisis in U.S. history. And though the there are certainly other substances and, and polysubstance use uh, are heavily involved, those deaths are still driven primarily by opioids. So healthcare professionals who aren't comfortable treating or, or managing pain or seeing patients who have chronic pain, uh, who aren't comfortable identifying treating substance use disorders and opioid use disorder, they need to get comfortable and they need to get comfortable fast because um, we are over a decade into being wide awake on this, this crisis and yet the numbers are getting worse every year. Obviously, there are some limits to what professionals should be expected to do based on their specialty, their scope of practice, but we all need to be looking for ways to contribute. As someone who trained in primary care, I always encourage primary care clinicians to obtain an X waiver to start prescribing buprenorphine. I've also had the opportunity to work a lot with hospital-based clinicians and programs here in Texas, and I'm surprised how many don't realize that buprenorphine and methadone can be ordered inpatient without special training or certification. 
Preventing withdrawal symptoms is critical for patients with physical dependence on opioids who are hospitalized for serious problems like infective endocarditis that might be a result of injection drug use. So it's, it's really important that hospitals, uh, the prescribers in a hospital, as well as the pharmacy department, are ready to facilitate access to buprenorphine or to ongoing uh, treatment with methadone or, or other opioids when we're talking about people with chronic pain, for example. Very, very profound, you know, thoughts there. It, it's, uh, it's not one of those check yourself moments or multiple moments. It's just the idea of, you know, seeing the forest within the trees. So, so do carry on. Well, pulling back to pharmacists, um, I'll say that doing better for people with opioid use disorder can be as simple as maintaining an adequate stock of life-saving medications, buprenorphine and naloxone, most notably and being willing to order them or help the patient find immediate access at another pharmacy if you don't happen to have them in stock. Of course, I'd recommend going further by offering naloxone proactively, advertising its availability, and selling non-prescription syringes without a hassle. That's what we teach our students to do at UT Austin. Ooh, I like how you pulled that back to the the education point. Sometimes I have to check myself too on what our our overall themes for our conversation are here today too. So, uh, you know, beyond UT Austin, beyond WVU for yours truly, uh, you know, there's a lot going on across the country in our schools of pharmacy. So, uh, you know, from your own observations uh, and quite frankly, leadership too, uh, especially, uh, you know, in leadership of the AACP, SUD SIG or special interest group. Um, how would you say are, are, you know, about 140 schools of pharmacy across the country are, are approaching SUD education? I, you know, like big picture, even any, anything stand out or, or what hasn't worked really too, I guess. You know, around the time that I joined the faculty at UT in the 2015, 2016 timeframe, AACP member schools came together and, and many signed on to a commitment to teach our students about opioid overdose prevention and response, about naloxone specifically. And I think that colleges of pharmacy really have done a great job of fulfilling that commitment, providing specific education related to naloxone, to PharmD students through required coursework, and in many cases to practicing pharmacists through continuing education programs. I've seen the impact of this firsthand in Texas. We've got graduates of our program contact me to share success stories of offering naloxone to patients, uh, and even from one former student who saved the life of a patient overdosing in their pharmacy's parking lot. So I, I feel like we're having a, a real impact, and that's been a success. However, I believe there are still many opportunities to improve substance use education in colleges of pharmacy. In 2020, I co-authored an AACP special committee report on substance use and pharmacy education, and we outlined key recommendations for content in this area with particular attention to the need to develop experiential education opportunities that expose students to people who use drugs and to substance use disorder treatment settings. Dr. Lindsay Loetta, a colleague I mentioned earlier, she recently published a brief report in the American Journal of Pharmaceutical Education that described an advanced pharmacy practice experience in addiction medicine that she developed to help address this deficit at UT Austin. And I think it's an excellent guide for preceptors and experiential education administrators 
who want to implement something similar at their college uh, if it doesn't currently exist. That is great uh, to hear because the the experiential education hat that I wear even uh, you know kind of resonates with this. I um, the most recent AACP uh, meeting on Grapevine or Dallas, Texas, uh, we got to highlight some of the things we're doing at WVU actually uh, of having our, our student pharmacists get that exposure uh, to things like harm reduction or the you know various populations and just this you know the whole genres of uh, pain management and opioid use disorder overall. And, and, you know, it, it really helps to spread those messages. It's, it's going beyond the PowerPoint to the patient. It's taken it to people's real lives. So, amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think getting out of the classroom with this content is essential. And I wish that we were able to provide that for more of our students. Uh, but we're working on it, not only through advanced pharmacy practice experiences, but also community service experiences earlier in their training where they can go out and, and provide overdose prevention and response education, distribute naloxone. And, um, but we're, we're also looking for ways to go beyond just naloxone. Not that that isn't still essential, but, but how do we move in a broader manner, uh, focus on, on other breaking issues. And, you know, I think that we're, we're probably both at institutions that are doing a great job in this regard, but overall, I, I have the feeling that pharmacy education often still remains too focused on primary prevention of substance use and addiction. And that, that's not always a popular sentiment uh, because primary prevention is, uh, it's a, a worthwhile endeavor and it's palatable. But I, in my opinion, because it's so palatable, it becomes the default in most cases. And naloxone's kind of as far as we go in a lot of colleges of pharmacy in terms of discussing harm reduction. My, the, my guidance to, to programs that are thinking a bit more broadly or are open to it, uh, I would just note that humans have been using psychoactive substances for the entirety of recorded history, and, and that isn't gonna change anytime soon. So we need to ensure our students are prepared to engage proactively with people who use drugs to support safer drug use. Uh, and I think an excessive focus on primary prevention gets in the way. For example, there's really no compelling evidence that prescription monitoring programs or tamper-resistant opioids positively impact patient outcomes. But we know access to sterile syringes improves health outcomes and leads to safer communities. That's why every UT Austin PharmD student participates in a simulated patient encounter that requires them to sell syringes to a patient who's requesting them without a prescription not to hassle that patient or ask questions about their intended use and to offer naloxone in a welcoming and non-confrontational manner. And we do that with our P1s so that early in their training, they're exposed to what we believe to be the public health approach to pharmacy practice when we engage with people who use illegal drugs. It's almost like creating a muscle memory, but the muscle is our brain in this case uh, of, you know, given, given that opportunity to, to practice in that regard, practice, practicing. Yeah. So, 
Um, so, um, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, as far as American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy or AACP, uh, lots of things, you know, within the academic realm uh, when it comes to SUD. Uh, but uh, they they had published uh, in all things academia and opioids. On that's that's paraphrasing your your my own, of course, but in basically an online database, and I'll provide the information in our show notes. But uh, published in 2019 and 2020, I believe. But uh, any word of an update to that resource and uh, anything you'd like to highlight for our listeners regarding it, really? Now, there is ongoing data collection for the, the opioid environmental scan conducted by AACP. So I would encourage listeners, if you're based at a college of pharmacy, to submit information about new opioid-related activities and to update previous submissions at aacp.org opioid. There was a major push for our member colleges to submit information when it launched in 2019. A poster describing the first round of data uh, was presented at the 2020 RX Opioid and Heroin Summit. And I'm not directly involved with analyses of the database, so I can't speak to current plans, but I do think it's really important for the pharmacy community that we ensure the database accurately reflects the activities of AACP member institutions. The work described in that data is a valuable reminder to federal agencies and uh, health professions organizations, other key stakeholders, that pharmacists are making meaningful contributions to the country's opioid response. And, and so I think we need to make sure that we're updating it regularly. But there, there's not a lot of incentive. We're all busy. Um, so I, I would encourage you maybe right after this podcast, if you're in a position to submit something, to, to go ahead and do so. Go and get her done, right? Uh, well, uh, you mentioned key stakeholders, so uh, take a breath because you're going to need it with this <laughs> next one here. But um, speaking of key stakeholders, so uh, I've asked a couple people this, but if you had five minutes with President Biden, what would you tell him or ask him about the need for pain and addiction education for healthcare professionals and uh, quite frankly, really society overall too? Oh man, well, this is another one where you might have to rein me in to make sure that I I end up focusing on education because there's so much to think about in terms of our federal response to to pain and addiction. But I think if I had five minutes with President Biden, you know, I'd start by pointing out how minimal and supply focused I really think the opioid response has been thus far. For example, we we had a declared public health emergency for a few years and our federal agencies hadn't really taken the bold actions necessary to stop deaths until the COVID pandemic facilitated some of the bigger thinking that that really should have been going on previously. Uh, For example, allowing initial uh, buprenorphine prescribing via telehealth, uh, facilitating more access to methadone take-homes. And it's that kind of really big picture wild change, uh, radical new policy thinking that you need to undertake when you've got 100,000 people dying every year from drug overdoses. And, and I think we've taken a really small piecemeal approach in most cases instead. Um, now, to, to make sure that I relate that to education, I, I guess my opinion would be that the most urgent education-related federal change that we need to improve our national opioid response is abolition of the X waiver for prescribing buprenorphine. As long as the X waiver persists, treating opioid use disorder will be seen as optional 
with a relatively high bar to entry. The recent removal of the training requirement only for physicians and only when they're providing buprenorphine to a very small panel of patients was not sufficient, not even close, to the point of being bordering on meaningless. We need immediate aggressive action. We need to abolish the X waiver. We need to call on the organizations that serve and accredit health profession schools to immediately require integration of content related to medications for opioid use disorder and harm reduction in their curricula. We need to collaborate with state professional boards to develop uniform continuing education requirements related to opioids that include MOUD and harm reduction. And we need to make sure that when these discussions about health professionals getting this training and, and having expanded authority comes up, that pharmacists are included in those discussions uh, and that that pharmacy perspective is viewed and, and valued in the way that it should be. Absolutely. We always need to have a place at the table. We, uh, you know, as Hamilton said, it's, uh, you want to be in the room where it happens, especially as pharmacists. So couldn't agree more on that aspect, of course. So, you know, bringing it home for us pharmacists, though, let's uh, maybe we'll go over something that something somebody could get involved with pretty immediately, actually. But, uh, you know, a rather profound adventure. Uh, in my own career and life, for that matter, uh, in this uh, realm, this genre of patient care, uh, was uh, attending the APHA Institute on Substance Use Disorders. Uh, so, um, general question for you, I guess, have you been to the APHA Institute on Substance Use Disorders? Um, if so, any takeaways or anything uh, in that regard? You know, I'm embarrassed to admit that I have not. Um, I advise a student organization that typically sends a few students and I would love to, to go at some point. But to be honest, I really wasn't very involved with the American Pharmacists Association until the last year or so. Um, and I think it reflects what you know, pharmacist listeners may be aware of in terms of sometimes a professional divide between uh, so-called clinical pharmacists who may have completed some postgraduate residencies and community pharmacists and, and the ways that we interact and see each other. And, and I certainly have gained a great deal of respect and appreciation for community pharmacists and their critical role in engaging with people who use drugs and people experiencing chronic pain. And I think that this APHA Institute on, on Substance Use Disorders provides a really important venue to, to help support them in terms of providing education and and guidance for how to improve their practices and, and to bring in students and other trainees to make sure that they're also getting that critical information. So um, I, I certainly hope that you'll see me at, at one of the upcoming uh, institutes, but, but no, I have not been yet. Well, it's not like this pain guy is directly tied to them or anything, but uh, consider yourself officially invited and uh, go a little easier on yourself. No, no worries. <laughs> we, we can only affect our future, right? Um, well, let's, uh, let me pivot here for maybe a hot second or a minute or two here, but, uh, I'm going to one of the questions I ask all of our guests on the pain pod, uh, Lucas, how do you define pain? Oh man. Well, my, my grandpa is a, uh, a semi-retired large animal veterinarian. And when you, when you ask me this question, the first thing that I think of is a story he used to tell about his time in veterinary school. And he, he said one of his exams was one question. 
uh, and the question was, how do you define pain? And that the only student who got an A turned his paper in within the first minute of the exam and said, uh, the threat of tissue destruction. And that was the full response. Um, in my opinion, I, I think that misses the mark. I think it's overly simplistic and, and it reminds me of the kind of the reflexive disease model of addiction and, and some of the ways that people who've been recognized as experts uh, on, on addiction in the past might talk about uh, substance use disorder. So I tried to, to come up with a better, broader definition for me, uh, and that is uh, the conscious perception of discomfort resulting from physical and emotional injury. I like and it. I, I thank you, thank you. <laughs> I think in I think in all cases there's some combination of physical and emotional injury driving our pain and our response to it. And um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with embarrassing, shameful about any of that. And and I think that they're really impossible to pull apart. Um, so that's that's what I'd go with. I, I want to throw out a side note. Uh, to listeners that I, when I was preparing for this, I first thought of a quote that uh, they might recognize from a DMX song. That's where I rec uh, remember <laughs> it from. Um, it's apparently often misattributed to Nietzsche and was actually first written by Harvard psychology professor Gordon Allport. And that quote is, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Suffer. To survive, bro, that's to find meaning in the suffering. I thought it sounded cool, but then I thought about it more, and I think it's I think it's too flippant for the serious subject of severe chronic pain. Um, when we have people who are debilitated by this disease, who are seeking relief from suffering in some cases through ending their life. Um, I don't judge them for that. I don't consider it to be a result of their failure to find meaning in suffering. And um, so so I didn't ultimately go that route. Uh, felt a little too emo to me. So so I'm gonna fall back to my my new quasi definition. Well, it's a personal one then, and I appreciate that. I always enjoy asking people that because the reflections are just remarkable. I couldn't quite see DMX coming up today, but you know, yeah. you never know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's a lot of information out there, whether it's, you know, defining terminology or much more complicated things, right? Um, do you have any pointers for our, our healthcare professionals out there and, and just how to keep up with all the, the drug overdose, opioid crisis, and, and pain management related headlines in general, really? For me, the go-to is Twitter. And if you aren't on there, that might sound ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but I read and download more journal articles from Twitter than from all the table of contents emails I subscribe to combined. Plus I'm able to learn from and engage directly with thought leaders in pain and in substance use disorder. Uh, I've been able to connect, for example, with Stefan Cortez at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and learn from him and communicate with him when I had questions. Uh, and Twitter also allows me to learn directly from patients and patient advocates. 
So, you know, while many clinicians didn't hear about the unintended consequences of forced opioid tapering until the CDC's guideline clarification in 2019, I was reading anecdotes and opinions and, and early research articles on that topic several years prior. Uh, Twitter has been just an invaluable learning and networking tool for me. Uh, that said, I would encourage new Twitter users to approach the platform with caution, uh, to observe for a while before posting. Uh, the internet is forever and a misstep on Twitter can, can definitely cause reputational harm. Absolutely. It's, and that, I mean, that of course goes for any social media too. Um, I, I tend to be uh, a little bit more active on LinkedIn. So, you know, between us, we've got Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not hearing much Facebook out there, but boy, it, it happens, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but either way, it, it's, a, it's a new frontier. I mean, really, it's not that new, but it's a newer frontier uh, as far as finding things. Uh, we'll keep that hush-hush from our drug info uh, professionals out there because they might not be as <laughs> fond of that. But, you know, reality is reality. So, um, but anyways, I, I, any, any of your thoughts you got, uh, I'll probably think of another question or two here, but now nah, that's uh, Twitter's my go-to, um, you know, I, I think that broadening your horizons, uh, in terms of conferences you attend or, or what different sources you might go to for online continuing education is a good idea too. Um, look for stuff that, that maybe is a little more opinion driven that isn't necessarily uh, doesn't appear to reflect your own biases or opinions and challenge yourself with, with some of your continuing education. That's the only other thing I'd throw in. I love that. Um, endeavoring into things uh, uh, where it's actually opposing your own opinion. Oh my goodness, if we did that in all of society, right? <laughs> uh, you know, kind of speaking of which, uh, I've kind of had you on the hot seat. I've been doing all the question asking here. Uh, any questions for Pain Guy here? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess, you know, my responses have been pretty heavily focused on substance use disorder and harm reduction. I criticized primary prevention a little bit, and and I I feel like pain management education when we're talking about MMEs, we're talking about the PMP. Oftentimes, it's a bit more prevention focused. How have my responses landed for you, uh, at, particularly as you know pain management and substance use disorder topics compete for curricular space and for national focus? That's a phenomenal question that I, I, I swear it comes up constantly uh, when we're looking at school pharmacy curriculums, uh, not just in one institution, but really everywhere it's happening of the, I, you know, big picture, I would say uh, there's only so many hours in a day for all of us, 24 to be exact, right? Uh, so similarly, there's only, only so many hours you can cram into any school pharmacy curriculum. Uh, but, you know, how do we, how do we just extract out the best in that regard? So, uh, gosh, a little bit over a decade ago, there was a study. It, it took a lot of heat and headlines uh, where schools of medicine were being accused of, and there was a lot of truth to it as well, of having very minimal pain management in their curriculums. And of course, by association, our schools of nursing, pharmacy, then the whole interprofessional gang uh, would be right along those same lines, of course. That being said, I mean, you know, observations since then, the hours are cranking up. Um, most, if not all schools of pharmacy, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Lucas too, of just, you know, putting these things, uh, these efforts, uh, into, 
uh, our, our curriculums across the country is really important. Um, that's an evolving process, though. Definitely got to keep that in mind of, you know, not just uh, concentrating on the primary prevention, but also, you know, at least exposing uh, everyone to different facets of where, how, where these efforts can go. Uh, for the longest time, uh, you know, we had to realize if you're running in a circle, you're literally not getting anywhere. You're going in a circle. Uh, so that constant assessment and like you mentioned earlier, going to different conferences, talking to people, getting in spaces where you're not comfortable is really important to just kind of reflect along the way. Uh, there's uh, numerous certificate programs out there, whether they're board certifications or just with uh, CE providers and, and and so on and so forth. You know what I think we really need? Um, I hardly ever give opinions when it comes to a mic, but hey, it's our podcast, right? Perhaps sessions on just how to disagree. Uh, I mean, at the core of a, like what we were talking about earlier of the providing the education, whether it's in academia or beyond, it's just the how do we disagree? Because we're not going to always agree as humans and certainly as professionals as well, too. So hopefully that helps for your thoughts there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I teach a um, Foundations for Interprofessional Collaborative Practice course and conflict resolution is part of it. So I can certainly see the value here. Well, one uh, another question I've got for you is... Um, Earlier, I called for rem removing mandatory training for would-be buprenorphine prescribers, but I also called for requiring medication for opioid use disorder and harm reduction education across the board for health professionals and trainees, so not just for the ones that are uh, opting in to buprenorphine. But how do you feel about states mandating opioid analgesic prescribing education and with some chatter over the past few years about doing the same nationally would you support a nationwide mandate for people who are prescribing opioids to to complete some additional proscribed curriculum on opioid analgesics I will gladly take the armchair quarterback approach here. <laughs> so um, I guess bigger picture. So state CE requirements, you know, they're different all over the place, but they're, they're very much unlike how we organize school pharmacy curriculums all across the country. Uh, what I mean there is that there, there's a few, usually like well less than a quarter, uh, required hours of CE topics, um, and the rest are pretty much a free-for-all. Now, we like that diversity because all of us are in different, uh, you know, uh, genres or sectors of patient care. But uh, if I was the armchair quarterback, I'd say, let's dice things up. Uh, first off, eliminate the MPJE. What? Yeah. I mean, we're the only healthcare profession that has a federal law exam. I mean, why? Uh, conversely, uh, let's not just get rid of something without, you know, emphasizing the education, but require something like two hours of pharmacy law for each state every year. And that way, as the laws change, you know, you're not still practicing like uh, you passed the test 30 years ago, right? Uh, or even a year ago, things could change. Uh, additionally, uh, uh, could require, you know, each and every state board of pharmacy to set a required curriculum, uh, include that two hours of law, and then maybe an additional four hours of, of pertinent topics. Uh, you know, whether it's every year, every two years, whatever the renewal cycles are, uh, but going with something like 12 hours of CE a year, that's one a month, rather reasonable. Uh, it could be, you know, flexed along the way, depending on what the renewal periods are, but, um, some of that might be pain, opioids, SUD, uh, reproductive health, immunization, so on and so forth. But, you know, topics change and evolve and they could be geographical. They could be population-based, but 
having that a little bit more prescriptive along the way may help out. And I'm usually one for getting rid of the micromanagement. Don't get me wrong, but we might have some uh, opportunities there. So uh, that's my armchair quarterback version. So <laughs> uh, here, I, I got to kick back one more to you though, Lucas. Uh, um, just uh, one of those I ask everybody to kind of, I guess, wrap things up, but what's your favorite pain medication? And of course, why? I'm going to give you one that uh, your audience might not think of reflexively as a pain medication, but I'm going to pick diacetyl morphine. Um, there was an extra credit item on my med chem exam as a student was to draw our favorite drug structure that we learned about during the semester. And, and I went with diacetyl morphine, AKA heroin, um, because I think it's, you know, there's the elegant modification of morphine to improve central nervous system penetration and, and thinking about it in this context as a pain medication, which it, no doubt it, it would be quite effective, at least in acute pain management, reminds me that our efforts to uncouple the relief of suffering and the experience of euphoria are misguided. Uh, we do the same thing when we talk about cannabinoids. Um, and I think that we should recognize that while we need to balance risk benefit uh, and, and maximize safety, we don't have to criminalize or shame the experience of euphoria. And when we provide something that, that relieves suffering and provides euphoria, we can find the right balance um, that that's not necessarily a bad thing well i think the natives would approve you include heroin and cannabinoids all within the description of your <laughs> answer I love it uh well uh well pain pod nation uh let us not forget here that learning does not end on the graduation stage i say it to the p1s every year right it always continues just like any campfire conversation with emphasize with the never stop learning right uh, well, when selecting your next batch of continuing education, uh, look to those trusted, tried and true sources of quality information. Uh, I, yours truly, I've got certificates out there of folks like uh, uh, Free CE, Pain Week, uh, the APHA, Yorick Summit, Lucas mentioned earlier, so on and so forth. Whether in person or online, get or done. Uh, so Pain Pod Nation, until the next episode, stay classy and stay educated. Join us next time on The Pain Pod. See Hope you're ready for the next episode. Hey, if you'd like to join Mark on the pain pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com and make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.